Hello and welcome back to In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director, and every other week we'll open with a new author's short story that we've recorded for you. Then, following each, I'll be sitting down to chat with the author. We'll talk about writing, the spark of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Then, at the end of this mini-series, I'll be trying to write and narrate my own short story, informed by all the wonderful people I've talked with. We'll also have bonus episodes focusing on audiobooks along the way, chats with industry professionals, interviews with authors, and anyone else I can get to talk to me about audiobooks. This week, we have a short story by Scotty Milder. Scotty Milder is a writer, filmmaker, and film educator living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He received his MFA in screenwriting from Boston University. His award-winning short films have screened at festivals all over the world, including Cinequest, the Dead by Dawn Festival of Horror, Holly Shorts, and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon. His independent film, Dead Billy, is available to stream on Amazon.com and Google Play. His short fiction has appeared, or will appear, in Dark Moon Digest, K-Zine, and Lovecraftiana magazine, as well as anthologies from Dark Peninsula Press, Sinister Smile Press, Dark Ink Books, and others. He teaches screenwriting and film production at Santa Fe Community College, Sol Acting Studios, and the Seattle Film Institute. He is also the co-host of the Weirdest Thing History Podcast, with actor and theatre artist Emilia Ampuero. So please, sit back and enjoy Scotty's short story, narrated by Elizabeth Dwyer. Mancos by Scotty Milder They made it three songs in to Languinger the Kiss before Tyler had enough. Oh, God, no, she said, mouth twisting into that perpetual sneer that Rhiannon had at first found so sexy and now mostly just wanted to claw off her face. I'm sorry, but no, I can't. Can't what? I mean, come on, Re. It's so typical. Two lesbians on a road trip listening to the Indigo Girls. Don't do this to me. Don't turn me into this person. She warbled along with the song, pushing her voice into an arrhythmic yodel that had nothing to do with what was actually coming out of the speakers. Stop. It doesn't sound like Tyler kept screeching. The sound was like a power drill right to the eardrums. Rhiannon sighed and banged the stereo off. Tyler snickered. Rhiannon could have pushed back, made a whole thing of this, but she'd been with Tyler long enough to know how that would go. Tyler envisioned herself the protector of all punk rock integrity and authenticity, and going along to get along was not in her emotional repertoire. She'd just keep needling and needling until she got her way. They'd been just north of Flagstaff, right after exhausting their library of unlistened to My Favorite Murder episodes, when Tyler announced that she was in the mood for some dissonance. Without asking, she never asked. She'd queued up her epic no-wave-noise-punk playlist. So for the last four and a quarter hours, it had been blizzardy mountain roads, stuck for an interminable amount of time behind a cement truck deep in the Navajo Nation, Slush, Sonic Youth, Flipper, Lydia Lunch, and the Swans. By the third hour, the ache had moved from Rhiannon's temples into her teeth. 
By hour four, when Tyler began mumbling along to Perry Ubu's final solution, Rhiannon snatched up the iPhone. Do you mind? I could use a change of pace, she said, more tentative than she liked, and also without asking, pulled up Swamp Ophelia. She pressed play. Normally, she wouldn't have dreamed of messing with Tyler's music, but desperate times called for desperate measures. It was either this or roadside murder. They drove. The wind tried to pry its way through a gap in the weather stripping. Something tick rattled in the hatch. The wipers drummed at an even cadence. Tyler glowered, her jaw twitching, and Rhiannon braced herself for the inevitable argument. All things considered, it didn't go as badly as it might have. They eventually settled on a compromise, Ani DeFranco's living in clip. Rhiannon didn't see how that was any less typical, but whatever. 30 seconds later, they were singing along, fuck you and your untouchable face, and giggling like lunatics. Just like that, Rhiannon's anger melted away. This, her mother never failed to remind her, had always been her problem. She was too quick to forgive. She just didn't have the energy or willpower to stay angry for as long as she should. The next song was shameless, but they didn't sing along to that one. Instead, rode in a relative silence on the border between comfortable and uncomfortable. Cortez fell away behind them, and Tyler's Honda Element twisted up into a narrow canyon between the San Miguel and La Plata Mountains. They passed a sign. Mancos, 21 miles. Durango was about an hour away. Thank Christ. They'd stop there for the night, grab some dinner, a burger for Tyler, a salad of whatever type for Rhiannon. They were nothing if not predictable. And hopefully Tyler wouldn't get too drunk and pick a fight with any of the trust fund hippies from Fort Lewis College. They'd finish the final leg to Denver in the morning. Rhiannon had been dreading this trip ever since she had impulsively proposed it a month and a half ago right after yet another stupid fight about only God could remember what. Hey, I'm going to Phoenix for Christmas to see my family. Why don't you come? She'd regretted that almost as soon as the words exited her mouth. Now that the trip was over, she wasn't relieved. Instead, she felt a disquieting emptiness. Not a good sign, Ree. It had all gone fine. Not great, but fine. Tyler got on swimmingly with Rhiannon's folks joshing her dad about his borderline hoarder tendencies, gamely helping her mom bake the pies, even spending half of Christmas Eve working with her younger brother Dex on his souped-up crotch rocket. Rhiannon had asked what the problem had been, and Tyler just shrugged and said something in the joke, whatever that meant. Even Rhiannon's mother hadn't managed to spoil anything, only making it awkward once. So wonderful to meet you, Anna. Call me Tyler an arched eyebrow, something barbed, preparing to dislodge itself. Oh, I thought it was Anna. Yeah, Anna Tyler, but I usually just go by my last name. Hmm, I might have a hard time remembering that. It's okay, I'll answer to anything. And later, to Rhiannon over the dishes. Why Tyler? I don't know, Mom. Is she one of those transgendered then? Or should I say they instead of she? Oh, Jesus, Mom, don't start. Rhiannon wasn't about to get into how Tyler had been named after her aunt, her mother's oldest sister, a small-minded country homophobe who had tried to talk Tyler's parents into sending her to conversion therapy. That conversation would open up too many cans of worms. Overall, Rhiannon shouldn't have had any complaints about how things had gone. When they were loading up the car this morning, her dad had pulled her aside, slipped a hundred into her palm, and whispered, I like this one. Do what you can to hang on to her, yeah? She'd felt her heart plummet into her kneecaps, 
and the effort it took to smile had felt like pushing a bowling ball out through her throat. Tyler could put on a good show for the family, sure. And in her heart of hearts, Rhiannon knew she meant well. She wasn't a bad person. She had moments where she was absolutely wonderful. As long as she was getting her way. At seven months, this was Rhiannon's longest relationship. She'd been a hit-and-run artist all through college in the first couple years after. Dex had teased her about it, calling her a heartbreaker. She'd laughed, hadn't had the stones to tell him that it was only because her own heart was broken. He would have asked why, and she wouldn't have had an answer beyond, I don't know, it just always has been. Tyler had felt like a chance to change that pattern, to try to dig for something deeper, maybe not run away for once. That first time they'd met over drinks, one more Tinder date in an unimpressive string of them, Rhiannon had seen that sneer, spit slick in the neon glow of a Budweiser sign, had looked into Tyler's eyes with their slightly chaotic twinkle, and had fallen right in. Her heart churned with this new, wonderful, almost unrecognizable thing. She knew then that she was in trouble. But who knew? Maybe it could have worked out. If only Tyler wasn't such an asshole so much of the time. Rhiannon snapped out of her reverie. She followed Tyler's finger. Some low-slung building whipped by, a shock splash of color peeking through snow-covered pines. I don't know. But then Tyler had her blinker on and was slowing. She crouched over the wheel like a cat ready to pounce. A semi-truck rumbled by, rocking them in a blast of wind. And then Tyler swung the element into a U-turn. What are you... I just want to see. Tyler, I just want to see. Jesus. The day had been a mixture of gray and white since they'd gotten north of Tuba City. So this sudden stab of color, hot pinks and electric blues, and the kind of green that you only see on bicycle shorts and movie green screens, was jarring. The building, whatever it was, was maybe 20 yards off the highway, surrounded by trees and nestled up against the stooped shoulder of a cliff. Rhiannon didn't see how to get up there until Tyler swung the wheel and the car plowed into a gap between the trees. Tyler, what? It's a road, Tyler said. And she was right, sort of. Rhiannon might have described it more as a path. Either way, it was packed with snow. The element growled and scrabbled for purchase, fishtailing as it lumbered through. Rhiannon gritted her teeth and braced herself against the glove box. You're going to get us stuck. It's all-wheel drive. Tyler, look at it. The snow's at least two feet deep. Tyler just thumped the car into low gear and towed the gas. The car sputtered forward another few feet, then slalomed to the left. A tree reared out and seemed to lunge for the passenger window. Rhiannon couldn't help it. She screamed. Tyler cackled, wild. The element seemed to bellow, then miraculously caught hold of a piece of hard ground and straightened out. Seconds later, they rolled up to the building. Rhiannon turned to bark something, but Tyler was already throwing her door open and getting out. By the time Rhiannon untangled herself from her seatbelt, Tyler had walked up to the building's window and was peering inside. Hearing Rhiannon's door slam, she turned with a grin. Isn't this great? Rhiannon looked at the building. Great was not the word she would have chosen. Up close, it had a ramshackle abandoned look. Soaped over windows gaped like cataract eyes. The paint, bright as it was, was chipped and flaky, spattered by untold years of water damage. It was one story, hexagonal, each side painted a brilliant and clashing color. 
The wall facing them was a yellow so bright it was almost obscene. To the left was a green wall. The wall to the right was cherry red. The roof was roughly domed. A narrow spire jutted from the center. It was also hexagonal, the angles perpendicular to those of the main building, the sides painted in even more dissonant colors. Rhiannon frowned. Something about the shape, the obnoxious garishness of the place, put her on edge. It projected a sense of both lunacy and a stillness that felt watchful, almost predatory. Tyler rattled the door. This was just like her. Tyler was nuts for anything odd, deserted, and forbidden. Before Rannon had met her, she'd been a part of an urban exploration club. From what Rannon could gather, that pretty much meant breaking into places where you weren't wanted. She'd once told Rhiannon a story about going with her friend one night to this little ghost town off I-40 down in New Mexico. The whole place had been surrounded by chain-link fencing, festooned with loud, no-trespassing signs every ten feet or so. They'd found a gap in the fence and poked around until realizing that one of the houses, up on a bluff set away from the others, was occupied. A single light burned in the upper window, and a one-ton pickup, plastered with NRA and don't-tread-on-me bumper stickers, sat out front. Flashlights were obviously out of the question. Not wanting to fall through a rotted floor in the dark, Tyler and her friend had left, only to come back the next night with night vision goggles. Even so, the guy living in that house must have heard them because he came barreling out the front door, shouting and waving a shotgun. They ran, barely making it out through the gap and back to their car before the shotgun blast had torn open the night. Tyler had laughed as she told Rhiannon that story. Rhiannon had been horrified. Can we go? Rhiannon called out. Why? Because it's almost dark, and if we get stuck on the way out, we'll be fucked. We're not going to get Tyler. It's January. We're up in the mountains. You realize we could literally freeze to death. Literally freeze to death, Tyler sing-songed and giggled. Oh, my God. I mean, I've only lived in Colorado my whole life, Ree, so of course I'm an idiot, right? Ty, I just want to see what's inside, and then we'll go. Chill out. Rhiannon made a noise. She hated how it sounded all whiny and puling. Tyler brought it out of her. Tyler stepped back from the door and looked up at the spire. What do you think it is? She called out. Like some old roadside attraction or something? Rhiannon frowned, clutching her arms against the cold, and looked back toward the highway. A couple cars thrummed past, unnervingly far away. A roadside attraction didn't make sense. The place was set too far back from the road, too hidden by the trees but she'd be damned if she was going to answer. Tyler would take it as validation, or at least submission. Maybe it was like some hippie commune or something, Tyler was saying. The colors. It's too small, Rhiannon said, mentally kicking herself. Then quite consciously, she decided to just give in. Again. Path of least resistance. It looks like a church to me. Yeah? I don't know, Tyler. Tyler gave the door another tug then disappeared around the side of the building. God damn it, Rhiannon muttered. She waited for about three minutes, leaning against the passenger door and listening to the splash drone of traffic down on the highway, the creak and crack of ice way up the mountain, the wind murmuring in the trees. She looked back the way they came, tracked the sun's descent through the mouth of the canyon. The day began to take on a glassy, tenebrous quality.
the cold pressed into her. God damn it. Finally, she pushed herself off the element and plodded through the snow after Tyler, calling her name. No response. God damn it. She rounded the green wall, then the pink wall, stumbling over a pile of concrete, finally coming around to the blue wall directly facing the cliff. Tyler wasn't there. Tyler! She stood there, hands on hips, and looked around. The rear of the building was piled high with junk. Rusted metal canisters, what looked like an old cast iron radiator, the skeletal remains of a couch. The mountain, about another hundred yards up a steep rise, was a more or less sheer wall of sparkling granite. She looked at the snow extending up the rise, nearly glass smooth and unblemished. No footsteps. No path. Tyler! A vibrating needle began to jitter in her gut. Another semi-truck blundered past, engine howling like something brutish and hungry. And under that, the squeal of a rusty hinge. Rhiannon hurried back around the building, feet skidding in the snow. The front door tilted inward now, just a crack, exposing a wedge of shadow. Something tinged in there, fading, like footsteps on a metal walkway. Rhiannon pushed the door open and went inside. The smell assaulted her. Dung, urine, and gone-over meat all underlaid by a swampy vegetable reek. Something chittered, sharp claws skittering on stone. She fumbled for her phone, nearly dropped it before managing to activate the flashlight. The beam pushed back the shadows a little, reflected off black eyes like a scatter of marbles. Something hissed, followed by another something growling and a third something squealing. Rhiannon stumbled backwards with a gasp. The beam found the culprits. Raccoons, what looked like a mother and two kits nesting for the winter. They backed into the far corner, hissing and spitting. The mother charged forward a foot, lips pulled back from needle-white teeth, then retreated. Somewhere. Ting. 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 Tyler! She shrieked. The panic gripped her fully now. She swung the flashlight back and forth, her mind registering bits and pieces of the space. A shattered glass chandelier beached on the floor like a many-tentacled sea monster. A couple upended folding chairs, legs stabbing upwards like bones out of a grave. Mold-crusted books, pages rippled and spongy from wet. Incongruously, an old piano. And in the center of the room, a well. Ting, ting. Ting. The well was yellowing, moss-speckled stone, about waist-high and maybe six feet across. It looked like the corona around an eclipse. That swamp stench came from there. She walked to it and peered over the edge, angling the flashlight beam. It wasn't a well at all, actually, but rather a set of rusty metal stairs. They corkscrewed down into darkness. Ting! Ting, ting, receding into the depths. She watched the stairs vibrate ever so slightly with each step. Tyler, she called, hesitant now. The sound stopped. Then, she could not gauge how far below, she caught a glimpse of a fleshy, upturned face. 
it pulled back into the murk. A giggle wafted up the shaft, feminine and airy, the sound ricocheted off the stone like the peal of distant wind chimes. Rhiannon had been planning to have the conversation once they got back to Denver. But if this was Tyler fucking with her, that conversation was going to happen much, much sooner. It would probably encompass three words. Go fuck yourself. And she'd be catching a bus in Durango, no matter how expensive it was or how long it took to get home. She would be damned if she'd spend any more time in the car with Tyler than she absolutely had to. Not after this. Something crashed down below. Metal resounding against metal and ending in a meaty thud. The stairs shook so hard that rust sieved down like red grain. Tyler? Nothing. Serves her right, she thought, and fully intended to march back to the car. Don't worry, she thought. I'll call someone. But what if Tyler had fallen and broken a leg or an arm or something? Smashed out all her teeth on the metal steps? If so, why wasn't she screaming? Go to the car. Call 911. Wait. That's exactly what she was going to do. Instead, she swung her leg over the brick and set her foot onto the first riser. She wound slowly down into black, all the while telling herself how stupid she was being. Tyler, if it even was Tyler, but of course it was, who else could it be? And you stop that line of thinking right now, Ree, wasn't making a sound. The deeper Rhiannon got, the more she convinced herself that Tyler had broken her neck and was dead. The flashlight beam slicked off stone walls that leaked viscous, rust-colored water. It streamed in long, mucousy runnels, pooling on the odd outcropping of jagged rock. She wasn't any sort of expert or engineer, but she didn't think there were any chisel or drill marks. The well was too evenly proportioned to be natural, but she was damned if she could tell how it had been dug. The stairs rattled under her weight. Metal groaned all around her as if in pain. Her mind created visions of the bolts tearing free, the stairs buckling, her body hurtling down to whatever lay below in an avalanche of ruptured flesh, splintered bones, and ribbons of torn steel. She stopped and looked up. The room above was dark, but enough light seeped through the soaked-over windows for her to see a dim, inviting circle, hovering above her like a waxing moon. Go back! Tyler's up there laughing her ass off at you, so just start climbing and go back. Tyler, she called out again. Her voice was quavery, childlike. There was no authority in it whatsoever. Water dripped metronomically down in the inky low. Waves of oily heat burbled out of the darkness, tickled and kissed her suddenly sweat-damp skin. She imagined plump, repulsive lips making their way up her body. Another giggle. It was vaguely familiar and silkily feminine, but it was definitely not Tyler. Her throat seized, her heart hammered, and her mind screamed at her to climb, just fucking climb. But she felt her calves flex, and all at once she was descending. She realized with smothering horror that Whatever her mind said, her body was no longer completely her own. Her fingers loosened and the phone slipped, blue light spinning down, down. 
her feet sunk into mud. The phone miraculously hadn't shattered. She could see the white glow half buried in muck. She scooped it up and wiped the flashlight on the hem of her shirt, then turned it to look at her surroundings. She was in a low-ceilinged chamber, maybe ten feet by twenty. It was roughly square, like the well, hewn from rock and too uniform to be entirely natural. One wall was fissured, a long diagonal crack extending from the ceiling to the floor. The heat came from beyond that crack and carried on it a Swedish rotten odor that made her think of tomatoes left too long in the sun. Water dribbled from the ceiling to a mud floor so black it looked like tar. Things protruded from it. Her legs seemed to be back within her control, so she turned to mount the stairs and get the hell out of there. A pair of sounds stopped her. Murmuring. Squelching. She spun, flashlight beams searching, and finally landing on a pale form hunkered in the far corner. Naked flesh, ropes of dun-colored hair. A woman's body, but oddly misshapen and unformed. Tyler, she breathed, but of course it wasn't Tyler. Tyler was a dream, a joke, a fantasy that had been rendered defunct by this hot, fetid darkness. The figure stood, turned. Rhiannon's legs gave out, spilling her to the mud, and she tried to scream. But of course, no sound came. Her throat had clamped down tight as a vice. Her hand splayed out gripped onto something hard and cylindrical. She swung it as the thing advanced on her, dimly aware that what she was swinging was somebody's leg bone. The thing batted it away and crouched above her. A featureless face, runny like molten wax, eyes like bleached glass peering out from behind the tangle of hair that wasn't hair at all, but rather knots of thin, muscular tendrils. A hole that was like a child's crayon slash of a mouth. It opened. Putty-like fingers, soft and revoltingly dry, probed Rhiannon's temples, and she felt the saurian intelligence of the thing pushing its way into her mind, sifting, searching. She tried to scrabble backwards for the stairs, but of course the stairs weren't there. They were never there. Just a big black hole in the ceiling, reaching for a dim, sunless moon. Up above, and so far away, Tyler was calling her name. The thing looked up with Rhiannon's own eyes, craned its rubbery neck, opened the hole that was, as she watched, forming itself into Rhiannon's own mouth, and whisper sang in Rhiannon's own voice, Your untouchable face. Tyler stood by the element, frowning. Re! She called again. Rhiannon! No answer but the wind and the thunder of distant snow giving way. Tyler had gone around the building, Rhiannon shouting after her, and she was already cursing herself by the time she had stumbled over the moldy old couch. She knew Re was mad at her. She knew she was screwing this up. She always screwed these things up but she couldn't seem to help herself. Anger was her baseline emotion, had been ever since she could remember, and it seemed to drive everything she did. 
Doc Wachner, her old middle school guidance counselor, had called it oppositional defiance disorder. Tyler was old enough now to know that that was just a fancy phrase for being a dick. But she didn't seem to be old enough to actually do anything about it. She'd start now. She'd apologize to Ree, and they'd leave. They'd get to Durango, and Tyler would do everything she could to make it up to her. Get her to laugh. Make love to her if Ree would let her. And tomorrow, as they finished the drive, she'd let her listen to all the indigo girls she wanted. But when she came back to the car, Rhiannon wasn't there. Tyler had done two circles around the building, calling Ree's name. A little annoyed at first, then worried, then afraid. The snow surrounding the structure and leading off into the trees was unbroken, so there was no way Rhiannon could have wandered off. Tyler had gone down to the highway thinking that, maybe in a fit of pique, Rhi had gone to hook a ride. But she wasn't there either, which either meant she succeeded, or that she was somewhere else entirely. Frankly, Tyler couldn't quite imagine Rhi just up and abandoning her, no matter how angry she was. When Tyler returned to the car the third time, she noticed that the building's front door was ajar. She breathed a sigh of relief and pushed it open, expecting Rhiannon to be in there, either pouting, poking around, or both. But it was just an empty room with old junk, a broken piano, and some angry raccoons. Hardly worth all this trouble. Now she stood by the element, intermittently shouting Rhi's name and staring at her phone, willing it to ring. She'd called Rhi at least 20 times. Each time it went straight to voicemail. Hey y'all, you got Rhiannon, tell me something cool, beep. Should she keep calling? Either Rhi's phone was dead or she'd shut it off. Tyler had also tried to call 911, but the phone just rang and rang and rang. Should she drive into Mancos and see if there was a police station? Even if there was, they'd likely just take one look at her and think, look at this dramatic dyke, and laugh. And if Rhiannon was still here somewhere and Tyler up and left her, well, that would pretty much be the end of that. She started walking, thinking she'd take one more trek around the building, looking for a sign, any sign, before biting the bullet and going to find a cop. Let them think what they wanted, as long as they came back and hinges squealed. The door swung open. Rhiannon stepped through, brushing cobwebs from her shirt. Ree! Tyler shouted. What the hell? Rhiannon looked at her. What? I've been looking all over for you. What? How did... The words sputtered out and died on the ground between them. I was just in there looking around, Rhiannon said, nonplussed. What? I looked in there. You weren't in there. Yeah, I was. Didn't you see the stairs? What stairs? Rhiannon shrugged and splashed through the snow toward the element. Whatever, can we please go now? Tyler took a deep breath. Questions swirled, but one look at Rhiannon's thunderous face told her that maybe now was not the time. Uh, yeah, sure, she said as Rhiannon opened the passenger door and threw herself inside. Five minutes later, as they sailed past Mancos, Tyler just couldn't help herself. There weren't any stairs in there, Rhi. Rhiannon looked at her, all innocence. You didn't see them? They went down. Down where? Rhiannon shrugged. Nowhere, really. That part of Tyler that wanted to fight, that always wanted to fight, snarled up a tangle of words. The part of her that maybe just, maybe, wanted to save this relationship, managed to bite them back. Rhiannon picked up Tyler's iPhone, began scrolling. 
She looked at Tyler and winked. Hey, she said. I'm in the mood for some dissonance. Perry Ubu warbled out of the speakers. Tyler looked at her, unsure. Rhiannon smiled. And just like that, maybe things were okay after all. Rhiannon lay in the mud and thought about this National Geographic documentary she'd seen a few years ago about exotic plants. One of them was the pitcher plant, a bell-shaped carnivorous thing that lured bugs by secreting pheromones, then trapped them in its belly with digestive enzymes. That's what this place was. Not a church, not a commune, not even a roadside attraction. It was a pitcher plant. And she was the bug. The pheromone had been curiosity and fear. Fear of Tyler. Fear for Tyler. She lay there for hours, staring up through the hole at the dim circle of light far above. It looked like it was at least a hundred feet up there. Maybe more. She'd screamed herself hoarse. Now her throat felt all raw and bloody. Her bones ached. She was thirsty, but when she tried to suck some of the water off the walls, it was so rancid she had nearly vomited. She figured soon enough she wouldn't care how nasty it was, and it wouldn't matter how sick it made her. The thing in the corner whimpered. About an hour ago, the fissure began to flex in and out. Something gurgled inside. She realized it wasn't a crack in the wall at all, but rather something like an enormous anus. Ten minutes of that, and then a thick, dripping proboscis emerged and deposited a quivering, mewling thing into the mud. It pulled itself free of its membranal sheath and skittered over to the corner, where it lay, sniveling. Rhiannon gazed at it, it was vaguely human in shape, but formless and gelatinous. It would ignore her, she knew. Whatever she had to offer had been used up. It would just wait until the next bug came along, no matter how long that took. And she... She looked at the bones sticking up out of the mud. She had counted five skulls so far, just at a glance. When the bug falls into the pitcher plant, it struggles for a while. The enzymes are like sticky molasses, grabbing and sucking. The bug struggles. Then it resigns itself. Then it's gone. Hi, Scotty. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Mangos. I think it's uh, a fabulous horror short story. I am certainly not someone who is well versed in horror. <laughs> so I will leave that uh, to the expert. And so I want to start right at the sort of crux of this podcast. Why short stories? What's the appeal of them? Well, I think for me, a lot of it comes from being a horror writer or primarily a horror writer because I feel like 
horror is a genre is really like it really kind of grew out of the short story in a lot of ways uh-huh. and if you think about what horror is it, the way i always talk about it like when i'm talking to my students uh-huh. is um i really think of horror as like the irrational invading a rational world and the problem with longer fiction sometimes is the longer your story is the more you have a tendency to feel like you have to explain what's happening okay and that's why like horror uh it it can be hard to sustain over the course of say a novel you know but a short story is just like this perfect little bite you know you introduce a couple characters and then something weird happens and then you can kind of get out of it without explaining anything and that's great so it's it's sort of plays on that suspense that how, how do you keep the tension high right yeah, that's really interesting. I've never thought of that. I mean, obviously, that's why sort of jump scares and that sort of thing work so well in sort mm-hmm. of films and things like that. But tell me about how short fiction and, and horror go hand in hand. You kind of said that they, they, they had this sort of relationship. Dig into that a bit. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, uh, a lot of people point to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as kind mm-hmm. of the first modern horror movie or horror story, I should mm-hmm. say. And it is, but it's also, you know, it's a gothic and it's a sci-fi. and All the different um, subgenres. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And again, it's very, like, explained. It becomes very rational by the end of it. You know, there Mm -hmm. is a scientific explanation for everything that happens. I I really trace what I think of where, like, the horror genre started back to Poe. Okay. Um, Because Poe, I think, had the biggest influence on, like, the development of the pulp writers of, like, the early part of the... 20th century going into like the 1920s you have like hp lovecraft Mm. uh clark ashton smith people like that who are publishing in like weird tales things like that so the the horror genre you know initially kind of called weird fiction just kind of coalesced around the short form i -hmm. think and so there's a real with horror fans there's just a real like love for the short horror story that's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I like what you said about the fact that, you know, you just, you don't need to explain anything. It's just scary. Right. And like part of the thing that makes something really scary sometimes is the unexplained. The, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I can, under, I can see how sort of long form can make that sort yeah. of just not as scary. There's a very particular type of dread, I think, that you create when, uh, when there is no explanation. Hmm. You know, suspense can exist in all sorts of genres, but horror is really about that lack of an explanation. Where It's where the world we think makes sense suddenly stops making sense. Yeah. And so that's, and again, I just think the short story is just like the perfect encapsulation of that if you do it right. So did you come to uh, short story writing through your love of horror or did you come to horror through your love of short stories? How did that work? I came to short stories through horror. Like I've been a horror fan since I can remember before I even really knew it was a thing. Like Uh when I was a little kid, I was just obsessed with monsters and ghosts and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really when I discovered Stephen King in middle school that it was just like, Oh, this is like an actual thing. Like these, these weird ideas I've been having forever. Like this is an actual thing I can do. And very quickly from there started diving into like horror short story anthologies. Mm-hmm. Because I was really trying to learn who is out there, who are the writers. Yeah. Rather than go from novel to novel to novel, it's like you could just go get one book and there'd be 20 stories from 20 different authors. And I think it just kind of conditioned me to think this is how you tell a 
This is how you tell a horror story. Mm. It's really interesting because, I mean, I, like I said, not well-versed in horror. I think my only real uh, uh, experience of horror is as a kid through, like, Goosebumps and, mm-hmm. and through those very, very short books. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that really does... And, like, I love the fact that they were so short that I could go through them so quickly. So I guess it's kind of has a similar feeling. I somehow skipped all of those. I went Did you? From, yeah, I was a big reader ever since I was a kid. But I was reading a lot of fantasy stuff and, like, Dungeons and Dragons type right, stuff. Right, yeah, huh? And then I went uh, from that right into Stephen King. Yeah, you <laughs> so, went right in for the dark stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it probably was too soft for you. Um, but yeah, I don't yeah know it really if... got me going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of people who point to, like, the Goosebumps and the Christopher Pike stories. Like, that was their entry point. Mm for a lot of people somehow i just i think i just wasn't aware of it uh well i mean one day maybe when you want to kick just go through them all there's some there's some yeah i mean like i said i'm soft as anything so yeah. they, they still scare me <laughs> I, I do remember a babysitter's club book that was about uh-huh. a haunted dollhouse that oh I my read. gosh i remember that one it's horrifying yeah. <laughs> yeah and i think i did enjoy that but that was probably the closest i came to that kind of thing cool um okay so you have, I mean, you're a film director mm-hmm. and you have a lot of experience in film writing as well. And so tell me, so what is it that tells you an idea is a short story instead of a novel, instead of a film? Like, what is it that kind of makes that distinction for you? Right. Um, if it's a film, often enough, it's something that I develop collaboratively with other people. Mm-hmm. So it kind of starts as a film from the start. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of times, like me and my cinematographer, who I work with all the time, we'll we'll kind of spitball and come up with story ideas together. Mm. Um, if if it's fiction that I'm writing, I think most of my ideas kind of start as short stories, right? Um, and if just the story keeps growing in my head, at a certain point, I'll be like, "Oh, this might be a novel." Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if I if I see sort of a like an endpoint or an explanation for what's happening, it's like okay, this probably works better in a novel. If if it just seems like, well, the ending is sort of before the ending, before mm. you actually understand what's happening, that feels like a short story to me. See, that's in, like I when I think of, I mean, like again, I don't have that much knowledge to draw on, but when I think of. Um, one, the structure of this short story, and we'll dig into it properly in a sec, but this feels like it could be the opening of a film. Like, it has mm-hmm. that essence where we know yeah. something that a film audience might know. And so I wonder right. if that's kind of something about it as well. It's like the setting up everything else to go horribly wrong, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I've, and it's interesting because this specific story um, is one that other people have told me, oh, you should turn, like, there's something cinematic about this mm. story that some of my other short fiction probably doesn't have. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, with like the image of her going down the stairs and the sound of the, the water and the ting, 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 all yeah. that. You know, you can really feel it as a film in yeah, that sense. Definitely. The thing that makes it not a movie to me is just that I don't know, like, people ask what is it that's in the wall and i'm like i don't know it's <laughs> it's just a thing <laughs> um and movie audiences do tend to expect more of a, a rationale yeah end, i think 
Give me an explanation. Right. And sometimes I just, I don't want the explanation. It kind of ruins it for me, Mm -hmm. you know, if I know exactly what it is. Well, I guess everyone wants to leave the movie theater going home and knowing that something's not going to jump out of their wall at them. Like they want (laughs) to, yeah, they want to go home feeling safe and sound, right? And you give them the explanation. They do. (laughs) So tell me about, um, how how does one even go about generating these scary ass ideas? Like, <laughs> how do you how do they come to you? I you know it's it's pretty mysterious to me. Oh. <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I Stephen King who who he's kind of my like he's my touchstone as a yeah. horror fan okay. as he is for like a lot of horror writers. He has a quote and it's it's slightly vulgar, so I'll edit it a little bit. But okay. he's um, he talks about. Uh, his muse he describes it as like a little gremlin that sits on his head mm-hmm. and then poops into his head oh. and it just like poops ideas into his head <laughs> <laughs> and like that's kind of how it feels to me it's just like suddenly it'll just like boop just kind of drop into my head uh-huh, right. I'll see something or I'll just make some connection and then the story just kind of sometimes it's just an image and then I have to reverse engineer the narrative out of that oh, okay that's interesting it's, it's rarely like I want to sit down and write a story about a vampire. So yeah, let me think of a. It's just it just kind of comes, and then you, you just kind of go with it. So I guess it kind of. I mean, one of the things uh, for me as a writer, um, most of my ideas come from a. I see something, I experience something, I feel something, and then I get the question, "What if?" And then I like mm-hmm. to like play around with it. So I guess it's that kind of. There's a what if, uh, right? About these weird things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's very much. You know, that's very much, I think, how I approach it as well. Uh You know, and Stephen King, again, he has a quote about, he has a short story or a novella called The Mist, Uh uh, which was turned into a film. And he said the way that that idea came to him is he was in a grocery store after a big uh, storm at a summer house in Maine. And the power was out and he was just standing there in the soup can aisle. And he just had the idea, wouldn't it be funny if a pterodactyl just flew down this aisle and knocked everything over <laughs> and then the story he said by the time he got to the cash register he just, he had the entire story so ah, to be yeah. Stephen King huh yeah <laughs> so tell me how did you settle on Mancos how did this come to you this was kind of a combination of two things happened mm-hmm. the first was probably four or five years ago me and a friend of mine uh the cinematographer actually that I referred to that mm-hmm. I often work with we were up in Colorado doing a camping trip and we were driving it was a different part of Colorado than what's described in the story but we were driving around the mountain somewhere and we drove by this very strange building not it wasn't quite as strange as what I Mm -hmm. described in the story but it was pretty weird yeah that kind of hexagonal shaped building and I was just like what the hell is that (laughs) and we didn't stop we didn't check it out but it just kind of stuck in my head I really hoped that there was going to be a building like that out there. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love that sort of play with uh, fiction based in uh, something yeah. that's really out there, which is brilliant. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I don't remember exactly where it was. <laughs> it was somewhere on the western slope of Colorado. Up in it's the mountains. probably like the room of requirement. It comes to you when you need it. And then yeah. you'll never find <laughs> it again. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then a couple years ago... Uh, I was actually driving back from Utah. I'd gone out to Utah for a ski trip. And I was driving that stretch between Cortez and Durango, mm-hmm. where you go through this town called Minkos. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that building because it looked the landscape looked similar. So I, I just kind of remembered that building. And then the story just kind of, by the time I got to Durango, I had most of the story. Then how did you go to putting it on uh 
paper or into your laptop? How, how did, how do you start writing a horror story? Um, I, you know, usually I'll start with the weird idea mm-hmm. and then the next step is trying to figure out who the people are. Mm-hmm. So with a lot of my stories, I'll start with a good chunk of the story is really just getting to know the characters and that kind of eases me into the story. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So we got the place, then we had the people. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with, um, to quote your story, the wall anus? <laughs> that I didn't know was going to happen until I wrote it. Oh, right. Um, so this was literally in the moment. Yeah, I knew that there was a, it was going to be a doppelganger story. Uh-huh. And then when she's coming down the stairs, I just, for some reason, wrote that there's a strange crack in the wall and with this heat coming through it. And I didn't mm. know what I was going to do with that. Oh, cool. And then when I go back to it, it just, I'm writing, and all of a sudden it opens up and this proboscis comes out. And I was, I was as surprised as everybody else when that happened. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and it is a moment. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So I want to dig into the story a lot. There's so much to talk okay. about. Um, but first of all, just a touchstone for the podcast is uh, the audio format of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So are you a listener of audiobooks? And if yes. so, why, why not? Tell us. I really fell in love with audiobooks kind of right after graduate school when I started going back and forth between New Mexico and L.A. for mm-hmm. film work. Oh, cool. Um, and going out for pitch meetings and things like that. And, you know, there's only so many podcasts and, you know, Metallica albums I can listen to <laughs> before I need something else. So I just started – this was before I think even Audible was a thing. I was buying the books on CD – on cd and listen yeah i remember doing the girl with the dragon tattoo that way and you know and just those long drives uh really um that's where i fell in love with the format and then the life-changing thing for me was when i realized that uh the whole whisper sync thing with uh audible and kindle books Mm -hmm. so i'm constantly going back and forth between the odd if i'm out driving around, I'll be listening to it on the audiobook, and then I come home and I'll put it on the Kindle for a while. And unless I really love the narrator, then I just stick with the mm. audiobook. So. See, I rarely, I rarely find myself doing the whisper saying. I I use I usually start with the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, I start with the audiobook because the, what I found is if I start with the Kindle book and then I try to switch to the audiobook. Mm. The narrator's voice voice doesn't sound like the narrator I've already created in my head, and then yeah. it it is it's distracting. It's harder to get into it. But if I start with the narrator, it kind of locks that in. So then when I go to the Kindle, that voice kind of continues. You know. Yeah, that I mean, it sounds like the wise way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's just really interesting because it shows quite how uh, impactful a narrator is going to be on a yeah. story. Um, yeah. Great. So, I mean, let's now we're talking about narrators. Let's talk about um, Mancos and Elizabeth, um, who yeah. we were very lucky to have Elizabeth Dwyer, who was guest on the last episode to narrate mm-hmm. this. Um, and you, uh, when we were in touch, you said, you know, I really want this to be a female narrator, which is why mm-hmm. you are not narrating it. Right. So t- tell me why you wanted that. Well, it was actually, you know, Elizabeth's a very good friend of mine. We've been friends mm-hmm. for about a decade now. And when I wrote the story, I've I've had it in my head mm-hmm. that I've wanted to do more audio type stuff. Right. Um, you know, as a filmmaker, I love working with actors. Mm-hmm. I've kind of at this point burned out on film a little bit. So I'm right. mostly focusing on my fiction writing, but I really miss working with actors. Mm. But even as I was writing that story, I was I was kind of casting it in my head a little yeah. bit. 
and Elizabeth was the first person I thought of. Oh, um, great. Just her voice just felt like Rhiannon's voice to me. So when she reached out to me and said, hey, I know this person who's got this podcast. Would you be interested? I was like, if you can read the story. And for the two reasons, one was I didn't feel like I should read the story. It's about two women in a relationship. Mm -hmm. and here I am, a, a cis hetero guy. Like it just doesn't right. feel doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And also, I really I've just been dying to hear her interpretation of the stories. I kind love of her voice. I wrote it. So, yeah. And I mean, not at all to take away from uh, Elizabeth's just innate skill as an actor. Um, you can really hear the voice that you kind mm -hmm. of imagined for her in it. Like she, she. I mean, she's excellent. I think she did this yeah. so well. And it was really interesting listening to you direct her and kind of hearing the the interpretations of things. Mm. You know sitting on the outside of that see that's an interesting one um so for all the listeners um when i realized that scotty wasn't going to be uh narrating it and um, we had a uh, first recording and um, and tech issues and all the fun mm -hmm. that comes with uh, a <laughs> no budget podcast um scotty has a microphone he was like hey let's let's do this um and so he brought it over and i was like okay so there's going to be another director in the room <laughs> as yeah. i direct um <laughs> and uh which you know in most cases is absolutely fine you know sometimes you get uh people who still have opinions and it's very hard to direct very particular right? yeah exactly <laughs> um scotty is not one of those people he was uh quiet as a mouse and uh <laughs> so i'm really interested to to know your thoughts about you know you come from a very strong directing background mm -hmm. um and in film so a different medium uh, tell, tell me about your sort of whole observations of the situation it was really fascinating um, because there are different concerns that you have if you're directing something that's purely an audio piece versus mm. a, a movie. So much of my approach to directing is to really, like I'll talk through the character with um, the actor, but I really try not to push, like this is how you should say this line mm -hmm. or anything, yeah. you know. Um, but I feel like you can't really get away with that in mm -hmm. an audio because so much of it is about pace and you know when that's the only thing you have is the voice you really have to work with that voice and I was really fascinated by how you would how precise you were about what you wanted without being overbearing because I feel mm -hmm. like that's got to be a really tricky line to walk you know yeah without micromanaging a performance but still getting this very precise performance yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like my background in directing is in theatre. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's probably sort of the longer rehearsal process of, you know, the art forms, you kind of get your well longer, it's never long mm -hmm. enough, surely. Yeah. But you have this long sort of rehearsal process where you really dig into motivation and you know, all those mm -hmm. things, um, all the stereotypes of Chekhov's like, background questions they're all exactly where I come from as a director mm -hmm. um and then I got into audiobooks and I very quickly realized that you just cannot direct with that uh, much depth mm -hmm. one the budget won't allow it because you're usually in a studio and you're usually recording a book in 25 hours and right. so the casting becomes hugely yeah. integral to the process and I mean Elizabeth is she she said in her episode she loves direction so she's like made for this but she's also incredibly intuitive when it comes to being spontaneous to the text um right. and I, 
there are very few moments when I would stop and say, you know, I think we need a bit more of this or we need a bit more of that. Or can you say it in a bit more like, I have this conversation every day with my mother, like that sort right. of tone. And then you're making those split second decisions where you've asked for something. They don't quite deliver what you want. But then you think, okay, but it still fits within the context mm-hmm. of the story. And then you just make the decision to go on. And that happens in like a second. Right. I mean, that that is definitely a lesson I learned as a director is, you know, sometimes you don't get exactly what mm. you saw in your head or heard in your head. But mm-hmm. if it works, and sometimes it's better than your idea. Quite you know? a lot of time. <laughs> like, I'm definitely not one of those directors who does the Stanley Kubrick 105 takes of yeah, right. blinking their eyes kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought you and her both had just this really good balance of kind of a, an organic give and take between you. And then, uh, but just, but really drilling into like the moments that needed to kind of pop, you know? Yeah. And I think, so there were, there were lots of things that made this particular story just so appropriate for audio. Um, one of which is your incredibly visceral language, like mm-hmm. so much of it is to be enjoyed by the narrator. Yeah, that's definitely something I learned as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. <laughs> when when you're writing a screenplay, you have you're so locked into like this is what we can see and hear yeah. that you really have to emphasize those like visual and auditory details. And I think it's just something I've kind of tried to pull through into the fiction writing. Oh, it so shows because there are just like delightful words like proboscis and like the things that you choose to say they they stand out and they really really grab attention in the way that you need Mm -hmm. them to so i really like when there was the murmuring and squelching i was like just Mm -hmm. do that again and just enjoy saying those words um and then the other thing that again my lack of knowledge of horror the thing that i i felt like we had to work with the most was the tension that is so mm-hmm. brilliantly built up and i'd love it if you could just talk through the tension of the piece and how it mm-hmm. was in in the recording i thought you guys nailed it and i really thought she nailed Phew. that kind of shift in tone uh one thing i noticed he did was you know you were just varying her pace mm. a lot yeah. when we got into that and I thought that wa- that worked really well because tension and suspense, it's really all about anticipation. Mm-hmm. So you just, you can't like run up on it. It's yeah. like, if you're telling a joke, you can't step on the punchline kind of thing. It's like, take your time to get yeah. there. Yeah, I really tried to draw out some of those slow, slower moments. Um, mm-hmm. And like, typically I don't like to leave a lot of space in an audio book because you don't want to leave any moment where... Um, a listener is going to say, oh, wait, why is it quiet? Or you don't right. want, but I, I kind of felt in, in horror, like I want them to be questioning it. I want them to kind of not know what's coming immediately. Well, I think that you had a really nice approach to the sound effects as well. They were so much fun. <laughs> and I thought that that allowed there to take its time, but you're still filling it with something and I've definitely heard, I've listened to audiobooks or like horror fiction podcasts where they've kind of overdone it mm. with that. And I thought it was like just enough to yeah. sell it without, without becoming overbearing. It's the sort of thing that makes me freak out. So I was like, I'm just mm-hmm. going to do this as though I'm trying to freak myself out. Um, and so I had the idea from the very first time that me and Elizabeth had read through it. Um, I had the very, like the idea that I wanted it to feel very sparse. I didn't want there mm-hmm. to be too many sounds. And like, 
once you put in one sound, the question is then like, okay, do I put in the sound of the raccoons? Do I put in the sound of this? Do I put in the sound of this? And like, and it can become too much. And then it sort of, it's like you're answering those questions um, that, you know, make it scary. What it reminded me of, you know, and it's something I do with sound design in my film work Mm -hmm. is a lot of times sort of monotonous droning type Mm. repetitive sounds really it's they really will increase the tension Mm. um you know if you listen to some of the best like film scores sometimes it's just a couple notes drawn out like drawn out and so i thought just using those spare you know the sound of the water dripping and you know, it was, like I said, it was like just enough to kind of put us in that headspace. Well, see, I, so I came up with a concept. I like, I wanted the dripping, um, but sound design is not where one, my skills necessarily lie, <laughs> um, but also my, my patience. I don't have the yeah. patience for it because it's not a human. It can't interact with me. And so therefore I can't right. <laughs> tell it what to do. So um, my husband is very, um very often my sort of sound designer and so Mm -hmm. i will say i mean i so my kitchen sink features heavily in this uh with the dripping which genuinely does keep me up at night drives me crazy (laughs) so um i thought i'd utilize it this time um and so i recorded a load of sounds from from the sink just on my phone and i was like Mm -hmm. here you go go nuts this is the section i want it in this is the section i want it in um and I, I I loved it. There were so many moments when I was like, ooh, and the moment that really stands out to me and literally made me physically repulsed is the moment where it says um, the creature opens its mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just like, instead of just the drips, it was then like a dribble. And it was just <laughs> so I, repulsive. Yeah. <laughs> And, like, the way you kind of painted that picture. Yeah, for some reason, the two things that people point out when they've read the story that just gross them out, mm. the proboscis, which is yeah. you know, understandable, but the, the crayon slash of a mouth, mm. that upsets people for some reason. What What brought that crayon slash into mind? I mean, I was just thinking of, like, I wanted this sort of unformed, almost human, but it's like immature not Mm. not fully inhabited yet and i just thought about little kids drawings you know and and then tried to transpose that into what would like a little kid's drawing look like in real life if Mm. that person walked in it would be horrifying yeah. You know? so oh I, just gosh. Kind of that. I mean like i think maybe that goes hand in hand with the um you know kids in horror is just mm-hmm. that's a trope that is so scary and so yeah. I, I felt like a kind of maybe a nod to that with crayons and mm-hmm. oh. it, yeah. just, it creeped <laughs> you creeps me out so much scotty this story oh, good <laughs> yeah i mean you, you did exactly and i enjoyed it as well like i don't i i am not someone who seeks out horror i just mm-hmm. knew i had to have horror represented on this podcast because yeah. if i'm looking at short fiction you know, like you said, it's, it's it's that, it's big. It's a major part of it. Right? Yeah. Um, okay, I, I, I want to talk about, I mean, the performance. Yes, Elizabeth is amazing. And I want to know, like, particularly why the voicing um, of Tyler and Rhiannon and the mother and the father. She she really mm-hmm. had the narration down at the same time as having these voices. So tell, tell me what that was like listening to 
those characters. You know, Tyler really jumped out at me because mm. I'll admit, like, I, I felt like I had Rhiannon's voice mm-hmm. pretty clear in my head. Um, I wasn't sure I had Tyler's voice. All right. And Elizabeth just did, you know, she just dropped her voice by like a little half notch of mm-hmm. an octave. The words became a little bit more clipped, a little bit more like husky, a little breathier. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds like Tyler. You know, so you listened to it and you felt felt it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so yeah. nice because we talked yeah. about it a bit and we talked about you can't control me, but I'm up for fun. I'm up for a laugh. I wanna and I said I think it was like think of um a sort of a darker manic pixie dream girl esque energy. Mm. Interesting. And we yeah. played with that um in the first recording and I don't think we quite nailed it. So thank you to the the tech. God's denying us that first recording Um, and I think it came through with the text because you say you maybe you didn't have it audibly but it was definitely there on paper Mm -hmm. well I think because in some ways Tyler's voice like you know I've I've definitely had people who've read the script and it's interesting to see who who people attach their sympathy for when oh, they've read yeah. the story because mm-hmm. some people are really all on Rhiannon's side and some people are really all on Tyler's mm. side and I'm pretty much right down the middle actually yeah. um, and I would say in some ways Tyler is actually more similar to me Yeah. so there was a little bit of self-criticism perhaps <laughs> oh. in, in exploring that character mm-hmm. um, just the stubbornness and the yeah. uh, you know, just digging your heels in, not knowing why you're doing it, but for some reason you can't stop doing it. You know, those are all mm-hmm. things I very much relate to. But the consequence of that is I think Tyler's voice, and this is probably why on the page it works, because Tyler was kind of me in mm. some ways. She was talking a little bit like how I would talk. Right. Um, but the consequence is the voice I heard in my head was a little bit too close to me. And obviously, yeah. like I said, I'm I'm a dude. So yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't that wouldn't necessarily work. Yeah, and I, I mean I think Elizabeth just she really took it and ran with it and she just made it her own. And I I love the two moments. Um the quote is I'm in the mood for a little bit of dissonance. Mm-hmm. Um and the two moments that that appears, one voiced by uh sort of in Rhiannon's head, but as Tyler. And then the mm. other, when Rhiannon says it at the end, I love mm-hmm. that foreshadowing right there. It's so delightful. Yeah. Um, and the way Elizabeth played with the tone and kind of had Rhiannon, it was clearly Rhiannon saying it, but it had that like edge, that enjoyment of Tyler mm-hmm. really kind of having that, you know, dissonance right. in her. It was nice. Yeah. When I thought she caught, because I imagine that line as being a little bit mocking mm. because, you know, it's not actually Rhiannon. It's, yeah. um, it's this Rhiannon thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of, I think, enjoying that it got over on these two people, and you know. And so without it being overdone, there was just that little twinkle in mm-hmm. the way Elizabeth delivered the line. If you read it the right way, is like a little bit menacing. Yeah, definitely. I really loved that. I love the way when I listened to it, the thing that stood out the most was literally just when she said, hey, it had this like Mm -hmm. real sick enjoyment in it. Mm -hmm. And then the the repetition of the line. Yeah, I thought I thought I just thought she did it 
so yeah. excellently. Yeah. I ask this of all the people on the podcast, and I think it's even more interesting maybe for as you weren't the narrator, um, mm-hmm. and so weren't sort of experiencing it uh, sort of emotionally in that moment. Um, can you take anything new from your story? Like, ha- has it got new life than it did um, on the page? Uh, yeah, tell me about that. I mean, it was really nice going through this process because, you know, I wrote this story... I first published it in 2019, mm-hmm. and I haven't really looked back at it mm-hmm. uh, too much in the interim. And so it was kind of like rediscovering it anew. And I don't know that there was like any one thing that was like a revelation about it, but it was just all these little details that either I didn't remember writing mm-hmm. <laughs> or the way the performance sort of delivered it where I was like, oh, this, that's that really works. Mm. <laughs> and a lot of it was just like little textural things, you yeah. know? way a line of dialogue would be delivered which was just like a little bit maybe different than what i had imagined Mm. but it did just sort of infuse this new life where it started to feel a little less like this is my story and more like this is just like i was almost experiencing it as just like a reader you know Mm. like it felt very new to me yeah it's it's interesting you know um i'm not sure what your experience is uh, in the theater sort of landscape but one of the things that sort of is the job of a playwright is to create this amazing uh, piece of text um, that as soon as it leaves their hands, they have no say over. Yeah. Um, And I really like that dynamic. Um, I also like the collaboration of, you know, creating with Mm -hmm. people, but that is a really fun dynamic. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it gets you in that position. You know, even as a filmmaker, I always think of myself as a writer first. Mm. And the reason I got into film was fundamentally because at that time in my life, sort of right after college, Mm -hmm. uh, I was really kind of like writing can be a very lonely experience. You're just you're in your head in a room typing. (laughs) And I'd always been friends with theater people and always been around theater. Mm -hmm. And so film just and I'd always been a movie fan. So film just felt like you know, the draw was to work with people and the excitement was to write something and then watch somebody else give it some new life. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've never been particularly precious about what I write. And you mentioned that you had been thinking of writing sort of for audio, doing some more things with audio um, Mm -hmm. in in the future. I'm super interested in, in what you think, like, what does that look like for you? I'm not 100% sure, mm-hmm. um, but I have wanted to put together some sort of audiobook of Fun. readings of probably some of my short stories. The problem I have right now, and it's a good problem to have, is that actually most of the short stories I've written have been accepted for publication or have been published somewhere. Yeah. So a lot of them I'm kind of waiting to get the rights back. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of like down the road kind of proposition. But I've actually talked to uh, a studio here in town. My idea would be to gather, you know, say if I did six stories, mm-hmm. get six different actors yeah. to read each story. You know, and I have enough actor friends and some really fantastic actors that mm-hmm. I feel like. But one, but one thing that has been intimidating to me is trying to figure out how would I direct for audio right. because I've never done it. Mm-hmm. And so I was really, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to kind of watch your process because I think there are things I learned from that about what would work. Um, Great. 
that's awesome and one of the one of the aspects of film that i actually sort of surprised myself that i fell in love with Mm. just in editing my own work is the sound design part of it and i'm totally self-taught like i don't know if i'm doing it right but it seems to work you know but that's you know i'm excited to get into where i want to play with some sound effects Mm. and things and see what i can what I can add to it, you know, through that process. Many, many months of uh, creating strange sounds in your apartment, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so at the end of each podcast, I always ask people um, sort of how has this experience kind of changed your feelings about audiobooks, audio production? I guess we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but do you have any extra thoughts on that? I mean, it's just made me more excited about the format. Like I, like I said, I've I've always been a big fan of audiobooks, mm. but there's something about uh, hearing your own work read yeah. aloud. And I and I've had you know I I had a short story that was on another horror fiction podcast uh, oh, last cool. summer, and a couple of the anthologies I've been in in have audiobooks. Nice. So I've I've had a little bit of that experience, but really being kind of part of the process was really fun, and it got me excited to try and do it myself i'd be so interested to uh yeah to listen to something that you've directed and written and sound designed it has this real Mm -hmm. sort of sense of um scotty uh, (laughs) essence of scotty right Uh, that's your new uh eau de cologne (laughs) brand (laughs) great um so where can listeners find you if they if they want more of your work uh, probably the best place to go is uh, just scottymilder.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find all my film stuff. You can find links to my feature film on there uh, and all of the, and links to all my published short fiction. Um, and then also Facebook. Uh, it's just facebook.com slash scottymilderwrites. Great. Thank you so much for having this chat today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much to Scotty for sharing his story and process with us this week. Thank you to Elizabeth Dwyer for her wonderful performance. And thank you so much to Teddy Merricks for the music, excellent sound design and logos. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. I'd love it if you could take a second to show the podcast some love. Share it on social media, force your loved ones to listen to it. Give it a review. It would mean so much to me. If you're interested in getting involved, either by submitting your short story or having a chat with me about audiobooks, you can find more info and contact details on my website at englishgirlinnewyork.org. I also hang around on Instagram under at aliciasbooks.n.bobs, as in books and bobs. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fork Productions. See you all next time.